Hi, it's Kate Brownfield from ADHDKidsCanThrive.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please like, share, and leave a review. My guest today is Dr. Damon Korb. He is a board-certified and behavioral and developmental pediatrician and author of an award-winning book titled Raising an Organized Child. Today, he joins me to talk about how to raise an organized child when they have ADHD. Thank you for listening and enjoy our conversation. Hi, Dr. Korb. Thank you for joining me today on the podcast. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Hello, great Uh, to be here. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so Dr. Korb is going to talk to us about how raising an organized, how to raise a child, an organized child when they have ADHD. Thank you for being here to educate us and give us some insight and some tips on how we can help our child do better. So let's start from the top about can you help us define what ADHD is and the aspects of that that can make it hard for kids to do well in school? Yeah, you know, this, there's many layers to that answer. You know, the, 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 the answer that the physicians, you know, want to give, or I as a physician want to give, is that ADHD is a genetic neurological condition. It's inheritable that uh, affects the neurotransmitters in the part of the brain that's important for focus, attention, and self-control. But the practical definition is that uh, the attention system does a whole lot of things. It's, it's like the conductor of your mental orchestra. And, and so, you know, its job is to tell these people to come a little louder and these people to go a little softer and these people to come at the same time and these people to wait. And, and it does that with all the processes in your brain. And when that's not working really well, even if you've got great musicians, the whole orchestra can sound like a mess because it's hard to manage your pacing, your timing, your uh, intensity when your attention system's not working great. Right. That's very well said. That's an interesting, I like how you explained that. Okay. So how does that interfere though? Like when it comes to school? Sure. You know, first I would say kids with ADHD who don't get treated struggle in school. Their dropout rates are are significantly higher. Uh, They get reprimanded eight to 10 times more than other kids. And and they get, um, they get negative feedback throughout the day. So there's all these just really negative things associated with attention problems. And, um, and what that's happening, what's happening on a micro level is uh, one, I'm sometimes missing information. So the teacher gives instructions. I don't get started. It frustrates the teacher. Um, I have to watch my peers and see what they're doing so that I understand what I'm supposed to be doing. If I'm self-aware enough to know that I'm not actually doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, it's missing information. The other thing that I see real commonly in schools is the inconsistency. We often say that people with ADHD are consistently inconsistent. So one day they can do A-level work and the next day they do D-level work, but that's the best they could do on that day. But the teacher or the parent gets very frustrated saying you're not trying because you can clearly do this A-level work. And on that day, if the neurotransmitters aren't flowing, it's just not there. And, and what's even more frightening, I think, is that those that flux in neurotransmitters can happen from moment to moment. You can be in a conversation and then out of a conversation. And, and so kids begin over time to feel self-conscious about themselves. They feel like they're not as smart. They're always afraid to ask questions because 
maybe the teacher just talked about this and I wasn't listening. So right. it has a lot of impacts on the on the actual just learning and access to information level, but on the psychological, emotional well-being of students over time as well, if they don't understand what's going on. Right, right. And then how, so that affects the kids at school. And then for sure, also, how does that show up in the home? I think as parents, we kind of forget that that, that same attention system really shows up at home as well with just doing daily tasks. So, you know, one, I'm going to keep taking us on little tangents and then bringing us back. Um, before we talk about ADHD, I really like to talk about what is attention. What is attention? What does a functioning attention system look like? What are the what are the, the roles of the attention system in our brain? And I like to divide that into three, maybe four categories. Um, the first category is what I call mental energy. That's the flow of neurotransmitters in your brain. Um, if you have, uh, and I use it analogous to what's in a gas tank of a car. If you have a small gas tank, you can only pay attention for a short span of time. You got a big gas tank, you can pay attention for long periods of time. Now, there are people with big attention, big, I mean, big gas tanks that, that can't pay attention to everything for a long period of time because their thrust, their fuel injection system isn't working really well. So like my Prius, they can drive around the city all day, but when they have to go uphill, everybody passes us. Passes us. Effort is effortful for them. So they have trouble with mental effort. Uh, there's also kids, like I said, that are inconsistent, that fuel assist, the fuel injection is inconsistent. So the cars you sputter, like when I was a kid, my car would go, kuk, 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 kuk. they don't do that anymore because we've got this fuel injection system. Um, but, but that inconsistent in and out makes focus and attention and the levels of concentrating um, very different. The last piece of that is kind of that arousal level. At what level am I idling on? Because some people are just chronically under aroused and they're, missing everything that kind of goes by and they need a little, huh, what? And every time you talk to them, they're, they're missing the beginning of it. Whereas other people can be hyper aroused where they're hyper vigilant and they're noticing everything. Right. So that's the, the first part, the mental energy. The second part is the processing controls. And the processing controls have to do with, is that fuel going where it needs to go? If I'm supposed to be paying attention, am I diverting sufficient, 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 energy to what I'm supposed to be paying attention to? Or is energy going to other things that are distracting me? When I need to divide my attention, can I pay attention to two things? Or can I only pay attention to one? Am I processing information deep enough? Or am I too cognitively active? So I'm thinking about all the remote tangential things. If we're learning about tornadoes, I'm thinking about ruby red slippers. But you should have a certain amount of cognitive activation because if you're too superficial and you're missing information, well then uh, you don't make those connections that we need to learn and, and attach to our prior knowledge. The third area is what I call the self-control area. So that's recognizing what's going on around me, wondering or understanding my impact on the people and the environment and being able to make adjustments based on uh, based on the feedback I'm getting. So that's what a functioning attention system is, but you can imagine you can have breakdowns in any one of those. You don't necessarily have to have breakdowns in all of them. So when we're talking about what it can look like in the home, it may look different for every child, depending on where those breakdowns are. For some kids, their attention span is really short. 
So what we have to do is we start at that level where they're five minute, six minute, seven minute attention span and don't make them sit and do 30 minutes of homework because it's not realistic. We work them in intervals. Um, for a child who's got really great attention span, but problems with mental effort, we have to figure out how to make that task more interesting. Maybe they study in a different site every, every time they do their homework as opposed to always in the same site, which is not really advice that you would think of um, for most people, but for some people, yeah, they yeah. need a little bit of excitement. Some people have to stand on one leg while they study. They have to, you know, challenge themselves and create some kind of excitement around it to keep their level of arousal and, and fuel going to pay attention. Other kids, you got to block out all distractions. But some kids, if they don't have a little bit of distraction, their brain goes on snooze. So really, the, the answer to your question is, what does it look like at home and actually at school too, really depends on the child and their individual strengths and weaknesses. Knowing your child is the key to supporting them. Yeah. And what they need, because all of these are different types of ADHD or how ADHD can present itself. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So it's really key for the parent to understand how their kid ticks, what makes them do well and not do well. If we want to get super meta um, around ADHD, all the terms in mental health are very different than the terms in, in somatic or medical health. In somatic medical health, somebody has pancreatic problems, they're not secreting enough insulin, so their blood sugar is too high and we call that diabetes. In mental health, we say, you know what, these symptoms tend to cluster, to cluster together, let's call it ADHD, let's call it depression, let's call it bipolar disorder, but it doesn't tell us anything about the mechanism to get there. And so all these kids can look a little different, but they kind of have some things in common. Okay. And that's how you come with a diagnosis, come up with a diagnosis. That's uh, yeah. But, but I would argue, and maybe I'm not the same as everybody in my field, but I would argue that diagnosis, while it's important to access services, it's not the most important thing in understanding your child. The most important thing is just understanding their strengths and weaknesses. Okay, so listening to you, I'm like, how do kids get through school? I mean, what is a parent supposed to do? These seem like really, um, these are challenges that seem, that are very difficult. I know they're very difficult. So what is a parent to do to help their child get through school? And then we'll get into how we help them get organized. But so, just knowing all these different levers that are going on in their brain, it just sounds exhausting. And just really hard. Like, how do kids with ADHD get through school? So I've got a, a number of different pieces of advice, but let's just talk conceptually about them. Um, one is school does not define your child. So try not to put all of your pressure and all your eggs in this kid's got to do great at school basket because they may have inconsistent performances. Learning is really important. And we need to make sure our kids are learning, but... Uh, too much pressure doesn't really help a child with ADHD. The second thing I would say is that um, kids with ADHD are going to have obstacles. And instead of uh, snow plowing those obstacles out of the way for them, teaching them how to deal with those obstacles is really important. Uh, teaching them how to advocate for themselves you know, if they knew an assignment or they knew they understood everything on the test, but they can see that they forgot to add, teach them to go back and talk to their teacher 
because they forgot to add two numbers and show them that they understood it and they did it right. They just made one little careless mistake. Teach them to be able to speak up for themselves because they're going to need that school skill as they get into high school and college because little issues will happen. Right. But that creativity in solving problems becomes lifelong valuable and is one of the reasons I've had friends that say, you know what? I love hiring somebody uh, with ADHD to do sales because they just know how to adjust on the fly and and um, and convince other people that this is really important because they've got that passion, that energy, and and uh, they don't take rejection as as hard as people who've never had uh, struggles. Right. Okay. So let's get into how to help an ADHD child be more organized. I wrote a book called Raising an Organized Child, and it was uh, published by the American Academy of, of Pediatrics. And uh, basically, I, I emphasize five steps, and these same five steps can be applied to children at, at any age, um, or parents can apply these same steps when coaching your child to be organized. So the, the first one is to be consistent. Children, all children, but especially kids with ADHD. And I'd say all these rules are even more important for a child with ADHD. Um, kids need consistency. They need regular rules and boundaries. They need um, routines to be their most successful their most successful selves. The second thing is, um, is that we want to introduce order. So for example, every task has a beginning, a middle, and an end. I write down my homework, I do my homework, and I submit it and hit send. If I don't submit and hit send, it's not homework. Homework is that whole task. And, and so we're trying to teach our kids that everything, we take out a toy, we play with the toy, we put away the toy. We prepare the meal, we eat the meal, we clean up after the meal. Everything has a beginning and a middle and an end. So there's order inherent in everything. And I want kids to really learn step wisdom that how to break things down into steps when they're given a large assignment. How do they how do they go, okay, I need to do this by Wednesday, I need to do this by Friday, I need to have this done by Monday. Um, and, and breaking it all down into steps is important. And that last step, being a closer, this is for high school kids, but being a closer is probably the most important step. I can do all the work, but if nobody can read my writing, I'm not gonna get the credit I deserve for it. Um, I have to, finish it. I have to submit it. I have to uh, do that final touch in order to get what I need. Um, so introduce orders. Number two, number three is give everything a place, give everything a place so that uh, kids with ADHD have trouble just managing their materials. You can label things. You can, um, you can draw outlines on where they go on your pegboard just to make it overly obvious and they don't have to waste brain energy thinking about where things go right. but if they can get consistency in where they place their things then it just saves their mental energy and then the higher functioning things as our kids get to be middle school and high school they become even more important but practice forward thinking and um, that means predicting estimating anticipating learning how to think ahead what would this ha look like if I do this? What if I don't start this until then? Will it be a problem? We want to teach them those skills. And then the last one is promote problem solving. So like I mentioned earlier, let them learn to solve their own problems um, because they're going to need to do that. And that's a really, really valuable skill in life for all kids, but especially kids with ADHD. 
Now, how you apply those things really depends on the level of your child. And that's what I try to explain in my book. I, I go a little bit by age, but it's not exactly age there. If we're talking organization in general, think about a seventh grader. The range of abilities of a seventh grader ranges from that of like a sixth grader to that of a, a 12th grader yeah. there in one in one classroom. There's a huge amount of variability because that part of the brain is totally growing at that point. And so you have to kind of know where your child is. Are they at a third grade level? Well, you can't hold them to a seventh grade expectation, but you got to push them towards a fourth grade expectation. And that's the key to parenting is how do you support, but push and continually push and challenge them within their capabilities. Right, right. Okay, and so a lot of kids with ADHD tend to be more immature in certain aspects. And usually it shows up in like organization and planning compared to their peers or what the expectation is in the classroom at that time. So how do parents, like, where's that balance? Like I often hear like, do I, it's a sink or swim, right? I think parents struggle with finding that balance of trying to help their child scoot them towards maturity in the classroom, let's say organization or chores at home, but without breaking them or the parent spirit, you know, how do you find that balance? Because you don't want to let them fail and just say, if they don't have the skills yet or that ability yet to develop those skills, right? You don't want to let them sink into failure. I think that's when kids, especially with ADHD, tend to drop out of school. They just give up. So So it's like, how do you find that balance as a parent to be supportive without being too supportive or too enmeshed with helping them? So first of all, um, there is medical evidence that kids are neurologically more, more behind when they have ADHD in that organization. There is evidence that that prefrontal cortex, that part of the brain right here, where um, that's so important for attention and self-control is developmentally about two and a half years behind somebody uh, who does not have ADHD. And that part of the brain continues to grow until we're about 28 years old. So the first thing I try to tell parents is to have perspective. It's they're going to get there. This is not going to be the way things are when they're 25, but we're on a different trajectory. And so we have to follow our kids' trajectory and not try to put them on somebody else's path. Because that's, that's when you run into problems. Um, the more we understand our child, the more we know how to support them. So for example, uh, what teachers do automatically is um, when kids are in kindergarten and they assign homework, they might give a packet. That packet goes home to the parent. Um, the parent works with the child all week, making sure things get done. It goes back in that envelope, the te- parent signs it and it's given to the teacher. They are working together to support that child at that level. But as they get to be second or third grade, maybe the the child gets homework. The the parent kind of looks on to see if they're doing okay and makes little corrections and suggestions here or there. But, you know, the kid's a little more in charge of turning it in. By the time they're in fourth or fifth grade, really the the child is um, directing more of that homework. They're doing that homework. Um, but the teacher is quick to notify the parent if something is missing, if they're falling behind, if there's an issue, the parents can step in and support. And when they're in middle school, 
then our job is to mostly help with kind of the long-term projects. So we're looking at, you know, things that might be done in a week, in two weeks, and are our kids pacing themselves for these bigger things so that the night before we're not going out to the store and buying, buying pipe cleaners and, you know, and, and crepe paper and all this stuff at the last second. Um, and, and then by high school, our goal is for us to be more of a consultant. Hey, let me know if you need anything. I'm here to help. And, and hopefully we've not put so much pressure and expectations on our kid that they're willing to come to us for help about homework and every other problem that they might have in high school. But that's just an example of homework, how you can break it down in your level of involvement, but continually push that child forward. And you don't have to use those same ages that I suggested because um, every child's a little different, but you have to know where your child's need for support is. And if you're doing more than what they need, when parent, when we're under, when our, we're underestimated by our parents, we tend to just say, "Well, I don't really need to try because <laughs> they don't expect much from me," right. and, and kids lower their expectations to your expectations. So, uh, teaching kids to do those things are uh, that they can do are important. A, a quick funny story: um, I was asked to be on the Today Show in Australia, and um, they wanted to talk about something I wrote in my book. That, that was that by the time kids are in second or third grade, they should be making their own lunch. And what I didn't know is while I was talking to them remotely like this, across the bottom of the screen, it says, California doctor gives controversial advice. Oh, and, no. <laughs> and, and, and it hit tabloids everywhere. And, and I'm, I'm getting emails, like half of them are like, absolutely. My kids were doing this in second grade and third grade and they can do this and it's totally something they can do. And other parents are like, you know what? I'm still making lunch for my my kid and he's in junior college and I'm really <laughs> proud of him. Yeah. And, and I'm like, well, so I, I thought it um, that was pretty funny, but I, you want to push your That's kids. That's a great example of the range of humanness, right? <laughs> and what kids are capable of or motivated to do. And there's a very large range. Right. And our job is to keep pushing them. Yeah. Toward, towards independence. So they can create a life that they love living, right? Absolutely. That's it's the, 18 years of letting go. Yeah. That's, that's what it is. Um, I just wanted to touch with you a little bit about screen time, um, because I do think being um, organized and planning and time management, those kind of things with ADHD definitely show up with screen time. And do you have any uh, words of wisdom or advice for parents who are trying to build those skills with their child when screens are dominating, you know, their world right now? The, the first thing I would say is what are the positives of screen time for your kids? For yourself, it's obvious. You, your kids are quiet. They're in the back of the car. They're not bugging you. But, you know, we do hard things for ourselves, for our kids all the time. That shouldn't be the reason we're giving them the phone. Um, it's, you know, the reason is, is maybe there's some social connection that they can get from there. It shouldn't be their only form of social connection. Um, that's about it. They can call you when they're uh, late or they're they're going to be in trouble, but uh, or they or they're having trouble, um, but those things don't really happen until kids are high school age, late middle school. So the first thing I would say is that kids don't really need much access to electronics when they're little. 
you know, through elementary school, there's really not a lot of benefits for them. Now, is it fun? Sure. So let's think of it more like candy. Okay, if my kids have candy a little bit after dinner, but if they're snacking on it throughout the day, it's not good for them. Uh, and, and so parents really have to have that perspective. Why am I giving my child this? Is it for me or for them? Um, yeah. Because it's much better for kids to go in the backyard and be bored and learn how to solve that problem of boredom because they're going to have that problem all their life. Right. And, and if they just default to electronics, it sets up this pattern of, I'm bored, I'm going to do this. Uh, this isn't interesting, I'm going to do this. And all of a sudden, they've lost the ability to converse and interact and engage. Not to mention all the other negatives associated with the phone. I mean, there's, there's clear data that says people who are looking at their phone, converging their eyes, have more vision problems. There's clear evidence that people spend more time on their phones have more obesity. There's data that teens who spend more time on social media have more anxiety and more depression. Uh, so there's, there's all these things associated with it. And yet, I'm not saying don't give your kid a phone. I'm just saying, let's really think about uh, a responsible way to give your child access. Just like you would a car. You wouldn't just say, here's the car, you're 16, drive anywhere you want the first day. Right. You know, you'd say you can go to the grocery store and you can come back. And once you've proven you can do that, maybe you can drive around during the day, but you got to be home by dark. And I don't want you going on the freeways yet. So we, we gradually introduce them to these things as long as they're showing responsibility. And if they're not, it's our fault. We don't need to get mad at our kids for this. We're giving them too much freedom. And so we just have to reel that back yeah. and understand their disappointment because you're taking away their candy. Yeah, that's a good analogy. It's a good way to look at it. Um, how do you, do you have any recommendations for parents, um, in implementing organizational tools like calendars, planners to just kind of stay on that track by age group, if you will? Mm -hmm. I, I think the most important lesson when it comes to organizing your child is to think of it as a journey. Um, meaning I like parents to sit down with their child and say, you know what? I noticed that I keep finding your shoes all over the house. Let's come up with a plan to solve this problem. And then you sit down and you listen to their ideas and you try one of them for a couple of weeks and you have another meeting and you say, the shoe problem is still going on. I think we need to try another plan. And then we problem solve and we come up with a solution. If we do everything for them and give them all their systems, they miss out on that problem solving learning process. And I, I think it's great for parents to collaborate through these struggles to be able to give objective feedback to your child without judgment or anger and say, well, let's tweak it. Right. I, always tell, I always tell my patients who forget to take their medicine. I say, it, it's not okay to just come in here and say, I forgot to take my medicine. I, I want to hear what you're going to do about it. Because every day you remember to wear shoes out of the house. You never once forget to wear shoes. You've got a system somehow about your shoes. Let's get a system and apply it to medicine. And my intent is for them to think about, okay, what could they do with their medicine? But some of them are like, okay, I'll put it in my shoes and I'll, I'll remember <laughs> it. <laughs> Fine, if it works, then, you know, in life. It's not a bad idea. It's not a bad idea. Whatever works, that's what you got to do. Right. But, but that, that problem solving is important. The second thing that's obvious with anything is you got to model it. Um, if you don't want your child using their phone at the dinner table or when they're driving, 
Don't use your phone at the dinner table or when you're driving. You have to model the kind of behavior that you want. And, uh, you know, depending on the mismatch of parents, some parents are ultra organized and they have a disorganized child. Um, just because you're modeling it doesn't mean it's going to be enough. But it's still valuable to, to demonstrate what that looks like. And then the third thing I would say is to learn to create mini routines, work them towards independence. So, for example, uh, these are the six things that you do in the bathroom and you write a list. And now you've no longer having to nag them about six things. You say, go back and look at your bathroom list. Make sure all those six things were done. Was the towel hung up? Was your jammies put in the laundry? You know, these are the six things you do. These are the four things you do before you walk out the door. And we slowly kind of create these routines, but with the hope of giving them more and more independence. Because by the time they're in the middle school, they just don't like to be nagged about these things, even though they know you're right. It's, it's just frustrating. So if we can give them the independence to conquer a routine one at a time, it's really helpful. So your question was about binders and notebooks and those kind of things. And yeah, I mean, we can come up with systems with binders and, and, and um, tabs and all those kind of things. But the most important part of that is finding the system that's functional for that child. And so the discussion around the organizational systems is more important than the actual organizational system that you use. Right. Good advice. Okay. So Dr. Corb, as we wrap up for today, what would be your advice for parents to get their ADHD child through skill, through school while maintaining that child and family's well-being? So the first part is, you know, if you're, uncertain if your child has ADHD, go get assessed, go talk to your pediatrician, get an assessment, find out what's going on and, and get as much information about your child as possible. The second thing is, you know, there's a lot of good books out there. Go read the books, the books that I have on my website and you, uh, Kate, have on your website. And, you know, go, go, go read these books and learn as much as you can about ADHD and the differences. The third is, have perspective. You are running a marathon when you're parenting your child. They don't have to win every race along the way, but you'd like for them to be winners by the time that they're, you know, 25. So we're mapping out a long-term plan and that to get there, getting mad at them for all the little things is not going to help them at 25. So you have to really think through that process of how do I support and encourage and push, um, but do it in a very, very patient, loving way. And that is the magic. That's the magic. It, it's the magic and in it's all of it. Right? No, I, it's, yeah. I have five kids. I am a pediatrician. I'm a board certified developmental behavioral pediatrician. I've coached 20 youth sports teams. I have uh, three, I'm, a, I'm the oldest of three kids. I've been babysitting since I was, you know, 12. <laughs> I have every credential possible, right? To be a, a, a great parent. And it's hard, right? It's hard. And so, you know, it's okay for it to be difficult. Go talk to your friends, complain a little bit, come back and do a great job. Yeah, good. Wise words. Thank you, Dr. Corb, for being here. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to talk to you. You're welcome.